book so highly. Who's classified as the dean? Is that Len? Len? I, I must give you a quarter or something at right time. I appreciate that kind of endorsement. I want to just come back for a couple of minutes to some of the questions and some of the concerns that were raised last hour. Uh, I could see that a lot of you had a number of issues and things that were just sort of churning through your heads. And uh, I don't want to override those. I don't want to in any way appear insensitive. And it's possible that I may have misinterpreted or misstated some things. I know <coughs> that there was one question there about is it possible that a person goes all the way through church and grade school and high school and Christian college and then leaves the faith? Yes, you know, I've seen that. And I'm sure that you have seen that kind of thing too. That does not mean that I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I believe in the P of Tulum, in the preservation of the saints. That God, if those are God's children, God will never let them go. God will pursue them and uh, bring them back to him. And just want to read to you briefly from John chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. It's such a, I think, a wonderful promise that we have there. Jesus answered, <coughs> I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they shall never perish no one can snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all no one can snatch them out of my father's hand hang on to that promise I have a brother who is not living according to God's law at all I have an aunt who is living like an absolute rebel we pray daily for them, that God will pursue them and drag them back into his fold so they once again become obedient servants of his. I also anticipated that there was going to be some potential confusion about this discussion of ends and means. And I'm knowing that there would be potential confusion, I didn't address this question last night. It's too abstract for kids, I think to grasp and sometimes you can easily miss the mark David Nakla <coughs> brought a question to me during break time which I think illustrates what I'm trying to get across to you so let me just repeat his illustration he said for years he had been some years not many years he had been <laughs> teaching in the physical education department and was teaching skills like soccer or softball and he worked hard at trying to teach those children the best possible skill level in soccer so that they would learn how to dribble, so they would learn how to pass, so they would teamwork and all of those kinds of things. But those were always tertiary objectives. And you never forget that those are tertiary. Suppose that right in the middle of a crucial game or in a practice session, all of a sudden some student blurts out, with a swear word and takes the name of God in vain. A Christian teacher will immediately stop that and say, hold it, blow the whistle, get over here right now, you just violated one of God's commands and you may do that. 
all of a sudden all that soccer stuff falls into a tertiary category and the fact that he has broken one of God's commandments takes priority over everything. That's what I'm talking about. You never forget your priorities. Let me also just try to make this point of clarification yet. Uh, one of the previous speakers gave me the impression, either rightly or wrongly, that out there are history books or biology books that are all ready and packaged and they're safe and this is sort of the standard fare. And I'm saying, don't operate that way. There are all kinds of books, history books, let's say, about American history or books about American literature. And every one of those books becomes a medium for a person or for a company to propagate their values, to propagate their objectives. They have goals that they are trying to implement through the publishing of those books. And your job is to come and screen and critique and select. You must be very careful in selecting books and you must come with some prior criteria. These are the things that we want to teach. Now, does this series help us do that? Does it do it better than this series does? Does it do it better or worse than this series? And finally, you say, given my objectives, given our goals for our children, this is going to be a primary tool. We will select that as a tool, but it has deficiencies, so we want to add to it this material. So you come always, not buying into somebody else's package, but you come with your objectives, with your goals, and now you begin to select on the basis of that. And you may end up selecting a book or a set of materials that has some objectives, that has some agenda which runs contrary to yours, and then you can still use it, and you can use it effectively to help your students become critical judges of their culture. As I did with my education <laughs> textbook, what is wrong with secular education? The best, the most effective way I could find of teaching that was to have them read the most popular secular book on the market and then teaching them constantly to critique and to discern what is wrong with that perspective? What's wrong with that statement? Why is this not a legitimate conclusion? In the process, you will frustrate kids. And they aren't going to stand around and cheer you at that point. But you know, you know that you've got to bring them through that. And then they will begin to see. Oh, now I finally recognize why we must have Christian schools, why I ought to be teaching in a Christian school and not just going along with the flow out there in the public education. That's, wh that's what I would say. If you have other questions dealing with this yet, I will certainly try to come back to them in break time over lunch, not during Larry's hike, because I'm going to listen to plant discussions, uh, but there will be time yet to raise some of the other questions and uh, maybe get some of your questions answered. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about is in the education book. And most of that stuff I still would stand by and say, you know, that is valid. So let's 
move on. We want to talk about teachers. Some of these questions came up already last night. In your outlines, number eight, what makes a really good teacher? Somebody had raised the specter already that good teachers are not always popular, and popular teachers are not always good. And I say, amen. I'll one of the greatest temptations for young teachers just coming out of college and entering the profession is to want kids to like them. Terribly strong temptation. And they think that it's you know, so important that they be popular with the kids. That's one of the, probably may be so crass, that's one of the dumbest things you can do. Don't do that because you're going to end up unpopular. The harder you try to be popular, the more apt you are to be unpopular. I've worked with enough teachers over the years. I was uh, principal superintendent for 10 years. Uh, and I saw some young people come out and try to do that and uh, end up just total failures. And after one year, they washed out and went into the insurance business. or went into the landscaping business or something. Uh, <coughs> they weren't smart enough to go into secretarial work. <laughs> just, just thought I'd re redeem myself with all the secretaries around here. <laughs> what I want to do in this next uh, time, this next half hour or so that we have, is to focus your attention on qualities of teachers and uh, ask yourself, what, when you think back, who was the best teacher I ever had? Who was the most influential person in my life that taught me more than anybody else? Let's see what's, uh, if you, and if you have a person in mind and you say, it's, you know, it clearly was person X. Uh, just stand by your chair and tell us a little bit about that teacher. And yes, sir. Okay, a plumber who was a very good, most effective teacher. A good illustration. Thank you. Anybody else want to contribute? Uh, Ellen. I met teachers that fit both sides of that. I had a, a teacher uh, in American history who went out of his way to be popular. And I can't remember a thing that he taught us. Uh, but he, you know, everybody liked him. He was a uh, you know, good, good guy. Uh, but like I said, what, what did we learn? I'm not sure. Uh, also, we liked him, but we didn't respect him. Uh, and then I had a science teacher, a, a, a physics teacher in high school that I remember distinctly, who commanded respect from the 
through, not because he was harsh or anything like that, but because he knew uh, what he was teaching. And uh, he presented it in a clear, orderly uh, fashion that was understandable and it came through, stuck in our minds, and we respected him. And then we also came to like him, but for the right reasons. Good, good illustration, good. Marilyn. Well, I had a, I had a history teacher. That's some, somebody who taught you by he means of history. By means of history. <laughs> yeah, just keep, keep your language clean. And this was History 101 in college. And um, it was, <coughs> I, he loved history, but he was the most unpopular teacher in the whole college. And he thrived on making you think. And his first premise was that these textbooks are wrong, and you better start examining them on the right way. And it's the first time I've ever exposed to the fact that just because it's in black and white doesn't mean it's right. And there were a lot of kids that didn't like him because you had to think out your answer to come up with a reason other than what was in the textbook. He usually dropped half his classes he left before the end of the season. That right after the first test, over three-fourths of class flunked, and they left. And then we really got into the nitty-gritty of history. Excellent teacher. You liked him. You were appreciated. Did the administration hire him again? Yeah, he's been there yeah. a long time. Okay, good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Rollins. I passed the fourth grade on trial. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do or get a paddling. <laughs> and, uh, well, I won't make the short story. Miss Gardet finally came along in fourth grade and uh, she was a progressive teacher and had a lot of some of the qualities of progressive teaching, I suppose, what it was called in those days. But she made me believe I could do something academically. She had a way of doing it. That was basically what she did. And uh, I thank God she was with us in the fourth grade, fifth grade, and the sixth grade. And when we left the school, she left to get married. <laughs> but she's the one that sticks in my mind. She made me believe, hey, I could, I could do some of this stuff. Good. The point is, you don't necessarily have to be a formal classroom teacher. It could be a plumber. It could be a college professor. It could be a fourth grade teacher. In my case, after listening to me for how long now? Oh, most of the week. Can you guess who my most influential teacher was? My dad. I don't think anybody in my life influenced me more and taught me more than my father. Um, and I used to fight with my dad. I used to quarrel and argue with him. We also had a very good relationship. So when I was in high school, I typed all of the minutes of what you would call the session for years because my dad was the clerk and he couldn't type and I could. And he says, so he just, Norm, here, type all the minutes of the session, all the discipline cases, everything. I knew everything that was going on. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't Presbyterian then yet. Did you have blonde hair? <laughs> I have... Hold it. I have proof. Evidence. That I at one time had hair. 
<laughs> and if you want to look at this, this is me and Ronnie <clears throat> together holding hands on one of our meeting opportunities. <clears throat> well, they can come and look at it if they want during break time. But I used to have long, thick, dark, wavy hair. And the barber had to thin it out every time I went to the barber shop. Now, I don't know what that has to do with being a good teacher. We got off the track. <laughs> we, yeah, I know what he was saying. Jay. Loretta just wanted to make sure that she's willing to testify that she remembers when you had long dark hair. Good. Thank you. I, I needed that. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, some of these other questions. I, I raised the question there, is intelligence the prime ingredient for good teachers? And I'm going to submit no. <laughs> intelligence is not the, the prime ingredient for good teachers. Let me give you uh, another homely illustration of that. Uh, four years ago, about right now, I bought a used computer, a 386 Zenith laptop from my oldest son. And this computer was you know, not nearly good enough for him. He just bought a much more complex, faster, bigger thing. And he said, Dad, I'll sell you this for a good, and I needed one. So I said, well, I don't know anything about computers. Well, I'll teach you. So he blocked out 20 minutes of time on his schedule. And <laughs> there, Dad, you, there's a computer. Go off to seminary and... No, hold it. I don't have any more time. Terrible teacher. <laughs> Terrible teacher. He knows stuff. You know, that blows my mind. Very bright. But as a teacher, forget it. He has absolutely no patience for slow learners. <laughs> he doesn't. It was often said... Now, in college, that if you can't do, teach. And if you can't teach, teach teachers. <laughs> I spend most of my life teaching teachers. But somebody who is very gifted, very uh, intelligent in some areas, may be so intelligent they, they don't have the understanding of somebody who is struggling. And when I taught, there were many times you would get very bright, very perceptive students in your classes. You didn't teach them a thing. Really, they, you know, they, they learned everything pretty much by reading the textbook or by look, looking at somebody else's notes. And they could function quite well without you. It's those in the middle and those who are having trouble are the ones that really need a teacher. And... Teaching requires patience. If you don't have patience, if you don't have the time to go over things again, you don't get it the first time, go over it a different way. You don't get it the second time, go over it a third time. You've got to have patience. And, and some of the kids with the very, very high IQ scores and so don't have it. And then they go off and do research or they go off and do other kinds of things, and that's great. The Lord, you know, gives them those kinds of things. When you read through Ephesians 4, you find that teaching 
is one of those things that's a gift from God. Let me just uh, call your attention to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I find it interesting there that Paul lumps pastors and teachers together with just a coordinate conjunction there. But he says, not everybody is called to be a teacher. Don't ever think so. Thankfully, God gives different kinds of gifts to different kinds of people. Some he gives ten gifts, and others he gives five, and some he gives only two, and some only one. But he gifts and he equips. Uh, now, there are qualities, characteristics, though, that I, I want to call to your attention beyond those that we've just mentioned. When I started my professional career as a teacher back in Edgerton, Minnesota, in a Christian high school, we had a parent-controlled school, and we had a board that was made up of farmers, because that's all there were around there. And these farmers worked out in the fields, and they sent their kids off to school in the morning, and once a month, it was their job to come to school and to evaluate the teachers, because in March you had to make a reappointment and decide you're going to rehire that teacher or you're going to fire that teacher. And these farmers would come to school and they would sit in the back of the room during those winter months, and it was warm in the classroom and it was cold outside in Minnesota, and after about five minutes the board members would be sound asleep. And at the end of the period, you'd wake them up and uh, they would say, oh, a good job. You did a good job. And uh, yes, they definitely wanted me to come back. And, and, and I, I, I know the tendency is to laugh and sort of to ridicule those farmers. But they, in the time that they were awake, they spotted something that was essential. There was good discipline in the classroom. If there's good discipline, there's good teaching. Simple equation. Just as simple as that. Do you buy it? Yes. No? Yes? Oh boy, we got an argument. <laughs> Hang on a minute. That's true. In, in a lot of schools, uh, it'd be dangerous to fall asleep. But... Let me just put a simple equation on the board. Discipline equals teaching. Did I hear somebody want a definition? No, I said that's a truism by definition. That's a truism by definition. Oh, I tell you, hold it, hold it, hold it. Don't, don't, don't give my thunder away before I get there. <laughs> Shame on you. 
Yes, you do. I, I would appreciate it for the next five minutes if you'd be quiet. It's, it's a truism in mathematics that you can add things to one side of your equation. You can also add them to the other side. If I add over here to this side, good as an adjective, I can add it to this side. So now, good discipline equals good teaching. If I say bad discipline, I can put bad over here, and I still have an equation. Right? What we have to do is to try to define this term. What do you mean when you say a good teacher is one who has good discipline? That's what you have to do. And if nobody will jump ahead of me, I'll try to define that for you. <laughs> discipline is a word that comes from an old Latin discipulus. In the Bible, the word is translated as disciple. And disciple is defined for us, if you look through most of your lexicons, as a learner or a student. So, discipling, disciples, discipline are all interconnected. Now, that word in our culture has a number of meanings. Like many words, it is not a simple word with one meaning, but a word with multiple meanings. When you think of discipline, what is the very first thing that comes to mind? That anybody can answer except the fellow in the back. <laughs> what? When you, what? Spanking. Correction. Hang on, hang on. Spanking or punishment? Spanking is just... Discipline is punishment. Say yes. That is... Punishment is one of the definitions, but it's way down the list. You take any standard dictionary and you're going to find that punishment occurs way down the list over there. It's not the first thing. Most people think of discipline as punishment. And nobody likes to punish. So nobody likes to discipline. Churches across the board, with the exception of the OPC, <laughs> do not practice discipline. Church discipline is, oh, that's cruel. That's mean. Terrible. So we don't practice any. Yes, question. It seems you ought to make I wouldn't, okay, the, the questioner is asking, is there a distinction between punishment and spanking? Spanking being good, punishment being evil, bad. And I would say, I don't accept that distinction. Punishment, I think, is a broad term to take in different kinds of discipline, different kinds of punishment. 
Uh, putting a person in jail for having murdered is a form of punishment. Uh, spanking a child for taking something that doesn't belong to him or, or whatever other is a form of punishment. Uh, when I think back on my teaching professional career, uh, when I was in Montana, we had a rule that during the afternoon recess between lunchtime and the afternoon classes, everybody had to go outside and play. And the girls never wanted to do that because they always wanted to go to the bathroom and stand in front of the mirror and put on more fresh lipstick and they want to make certain that their nylons were straight. So I would punish them by sending them outside. <laughs> that was punishment. That was terrible punishment. Punishment is something you do. It's a form of correction. So but I, I don't think that distinction should hold up. Let me try to move forward. What else is involved? What other things are we talking about here when we talk about discipline? Yes, uh, faith? Training. Training or uh, establishing a type of behavior. Uh, for example, there's a Marine Lieutenant Colonel somewhere around who has, where is it? Back there. Who has been part of a system of very intensive discipline for many, many years. And it's a type of training, a style or a kind of behavior. That's a good definition. We'll put it down as number three. And I'll simply call it here a behavior code for abbreviation purposes. <laughs> Maybe I'm using code incorrectly there. But yes, what else? How about attention? Well, attention would be tied in with that training or behavior code. There, uh, being at attention, listening carefully is a sign that there's, there's discipline. But we're, we're missing something yet, Bob. Control, I would put in that same category. Control, behavior code, a way of living would be part of that. Uh, in the back, in the black shirt. Uh, I think it's probably covered, but orderliness, and human orderliness, again, I would put here uh, in there in a behavior code. Oh, yes? How about teaching? How about teaching? Yes. teaching oh, teaching? Is connected with discipline? Now the fellow in the back can talk again. Uh, <laughs> you look in a standard dictionary and you will find that the very first definition of discipline is teaching or education or instruction. That's what's meant by the word. We've lost sight of that in our culture. Now what is the second? What is the second meaning that you're going to find in most dictionaries? Ah, uh, let's try it with Larry. Oh, yes. And Larry said that the second meaning of discipline is an organized body of subject matter. We talk about the discipline of history, or we talk about the discipline of mathematics, or the discipline of, of political science, or the discipline of psychology. 
discipline is an organized body of subject matter. And I'll abbreviate it here simply an organized knowledge. And you understand what we mean by that abbreviation? Now, now I can begin to take a look at that equation. Good discipline is good teaching. What do I have now but a tautology? You know what a tautology is? Something that is so obviously true by definition that it's saying one equals one. Discipline means teaching by definition. Therefore, discipline equals discipline or teaching equals teaching. That's a tautology. It's so obviously true you can't argue with it. That is a point of no contest. Now, what I have at work is that I am trying to teach a student whatever, whatever my goal might be. And I am going to use discipline in order to discipline that student. I'm trying to discipline that student. I use discipline in order to discipline that student because I want to produce in that student a code of behavior, a way of living, or a pattern of life according to a set of rules. That's what I'm trying to achieve. But the rascal won't cooperate and rebels against me. So now I use discipline to bring about discipline, to bring about discipline. Now I'm disciplining him with discipline in order to achieve discipline. And since he won't achieve discipline, I use discipline to punish him. You see what I'm doing? I'm using punishment now as a means of teaching. I'm using punishment as a necessary kind of corrective to bring about the, the way of life, the lifestyle that I want to achieve. And I can't achieve it with just the subject. And I say to him in frustration, if you don't learn, I am going to have to give you a detention. See, that's punishment. Now I'm using a punishment there to try to effect what I'm trying to teach him. So I have a whole series of words here that are packed with different meaning. Those farmers back there in Edgerton, Minnesota didn't understand all this. But they intuitively knew it. They knew that if I couldn't control the behavior of my students in that classroom, that I wasn't being an effective teacher. And after five minutes, they were convinced that I was good at discipline, therefore good at teaching, therefore they could safely take a nap. <laughs> and at the end of the year, they said, that man's a good teacher. And I, you know, my temptation was to sort of laugh and snicker, but they intuitively knew, and, and they said in a couple of cases, we don't want to rehire that person because doesn't have good discipline can't control the classroom. And it was true. We had a couple of teachers that year that were absolutely failures. Uh, the kids walked all over them. The kids you know, did everything contrary to the book and got by with it. So 
Yes, question. And you know what? I shouldn't have put that up there. There is a fifth definition in most standard dictionaries, and for the life of me right now, I can't remember what it is. <laughs> it's not material to the discussion that we're having. I'll, uh, I, I goofed a bit, and you caught it, and I'm embarrassed. <laughs> but let's go on. I'll, a couple of other questions about teaching. I've already addressed for you, at least in part, that next question on your outline. Are good teachers born, or are they made? <laughs> oh, oh, that was not... No, leave that out of the discussion. I'll, there has historically been a great deal of criticism, sometimes outright condemnation of teachers' colleges and teacher training programs. And in many cases, that's valid. I, I would say that there are a lot of these programs and a lot of institutions that are a waste of time. We're better off not having them. But I would say at the same time that the answer to this question is yes, both. Not everybody can become a teacher. I don't believe that God has just across the board given those gifts to every person. I think God gives them selectively. And I would say that some mothers should not homeschool because they are not good teachers. Don't think that just because you're a mother that therefore you are equipped and qualified as a teacher. doesn't follow. God gives those gifts to some people, but not to others. And if he hasn't given you that gift, and if somebody makes that apparent to you, then do something else, because he's given you other kinds of abilities and other kinds of gifts. But God does give those gifts to some people. And sometimes you can spot them early. You can see it in your children who love to sit down with younger brothers and sisters or young, love to sit down with the children they're babysitting in the neighborhood, and they just are natural-born teachers. Now, if you're a natural-born teacher, you don't have to go to college and get a degree in education, right? No. No, doesn't follow again. Those skills those qualities need to be honed and sharpened. They, they need to develop the kinds of understandings, the kinds of insights, and so that will make them even more effective, that will equip them, really. So I, I am a firm believer in having teacher training programs. But I also would want to insist that those be good teacher training programs. What has bugged me over the years is that a lot of teacher training programs do everything backwards. They start out in the very freshman year with methods courses. And you've got to take methods of teaching social studies, methods of teaching arithmetic, methods of teaching PE, and methods of it, and you have no time whatsoever to really concern yourself with basic issues of philosophy. 
most teacher ed programs don't even have philosophy of ed courses in them. That's a rarity. So if you're looking for a place to send your children to go off and get training for a teaching profession, look carefully at the program. Do they begin with foundational stuff? Do they begin to develop and to articulate for the student a philosophy of education that will give them a framework out of which to operate? If you become preoccupied with methods, methodology courses, by the time you graduate, the curriculum will have changed and you'll be obsolete. Really. If you are understanding of the process and you have a good, solid grasp of the nature of kids, you really understand human nature and how you can affect and mold and shape human nature, then you can adapt to that day when computers take over and become everywhere present. You can cope with that kind of stuff. So I, I firmly believe that training is a necessary addition to the gifts that God gives. Let me just quickly address the other questions there on the sheet. Is teaching an art or is it a science? Yes. You, you've learned how I formulate questions. <laughs> You're catching on fast. To think of it as an art is to think of something that is unique, that's creative, that doesn't follow the normal shape and, and fashion. And I have seen some wonderfully creative teachers who approach their task with very creative kinds of programs and activities and they say, I never thought of that, I never saw it that way before, that's marvelous and tremendously effective. Let me give you just one homely illustration. Some years ago, I had a student out in a Christian school doing student teaching in Highland, Indiana. And a large, very large Christian elementary school. Uh, I said that I was going to be there one morning at about 9.30 and the student was scheduled. This was a male. Uh, I believe it was fourth grade and was going to be teaching Bible. So I wanted to sit there and observe how this young man was going to teach Bible. I got to the school, walked down the hallway, there's nobody in the class. So I go back to the office. Uh, I was supposed to be here to see so-and-so. Uh, where is he? Oh, I think he took the kids out on the playground. Bible class? So, okay, I go out the back door, and there's a large playground out there, and here are his 20-some fourth-grade students, and they are all spread out over that playground from one end to the other. So I walked over and said, what are you doing? Well, I said, we're teaching them the dimensions of the ark. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. That's how big the ark was? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Those kids never forget it. Kids never forget it. It wasn't in any books. But this was a creative young man who, who became a very excellent elementary teacher. There are others who say, you know, here we're going to have all kinds of research projects. We're going to get government funding. This is scientific stuff. There is a scientific methodology that must be uncovered somehow, and you must follow the rules. Uh, 
Mm, I'm sorry. There is a body of knowledge. That's what we mean by science. There is a body of knowledge out there about teaching, and some of the stuff is good. Some of it is helpful. Some of it isn't worth spending your time on. We've already addressed the question about firmness and patience as being necessary virtues. Last night we were talking about firmness. A good teacher, when he or she knows that he or she is right, won't give in to the pressures of the kids. Will stand firm and let the kids you know, bounce off and, and uh, gradually move forward. But I, I can't leave this session without asking the last question. Who is the most famous teacher in the history of the world? Jesus Christ. And what characterized him? He wasn't popular. Well, for a while he was. For a while the crowds came flocking around as long as he had bread and fish to feed him, as long as he had miracles to perform. But uh, once they began to realize what he was really trying to do, what he was really all about, uh, they turned against him. And then he had to start teaching in parables. He changed his teaching strategy. He says, I'm going to teach in parables so that all of those enemies of the gospel won't really see what I'm here for. There will come a day, there will come a time when I will make it crystal clear that I came here to die. But that's not yet. In the meantime, I'm going to obscure the message. I'm going to reveal it only to my disciples, to my chosen ones. And I'm not saying that you and I have to uh, try to incur the wrath of our students. Don't, don't, don't jump to that log illogical conclusion. I'm saying that Jesus Christ has to always be our model. And sometimes we might be persecuted. We might be badly abused because we stand for the truth. Uh, and there may be a price to pay. You may end up... Uh, being hated by some of your kids. But there's a higher master that we serve. We serve Jesus Christ. And uh, we want to become more and more like the master. So that someday when we stand before him, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Enter into my rest. I'll leave you with those words. Thanks. Thanks.